courtroom is pin-drop silent as the judge tells the jury the names of the defendant and the victim, and then lists the witnesses, so that the jury can make sure they don't know any of them. Once this is done, the clerk reads out the charges to the jury. The acoustics in the courtroom are terrible. In the public gallery, we are on the opposite side of the room to the jury. The judge, presiding, is at a diagonal to us. The barristers are nearer, but they have their backs to us throughout, as they are addressing the jury. When any of these people, the judge or the lawyers, speaks off mic, it's very difficult for us to hear what they are saying. As we are not allowed to talk to the prosecution barrister at all, during a break we tell Megan, the officer in charge of the case, that we are struggling to make out what is being said. Megan must have passed the message on because when the session resumes, the judge angles her microphone more effectively towards her. She instructs the jury that they can take notes, but they must not try to research the case in any way, and must only speak about the case when they are all together in the jury room. After the trial is concluded, the judge goes on. You can discuss the trial and anything that has been said in open court, but you cannot ever discuss what you have talked about together. Your deliberations remain private for all time. I think about the juror on the Ghislaine Maxwell case who has been talking to the press in the US, giving letter and verse about the whole thing. The system there is clearly very different, but we watch so many American courtroom dramas that we start to believe the same laws, rules and regulations apply here in the UK. The jury is also told that the defendant will use the services of a Punjabi interpreter. I'm puzzled. When I tried to find someone to translate Miss X's conversation from the CCTV, the Pakistani Punjabi speaker I approached could not understand it. This led me to believe the language she was speaking was Kabli, the mix of Punjabi and Dari that the Punjabi Afghan community uses. I guess that's not the case, but I suppose there must be different versions or dialects of Punjabi spoken in different areas and countries. Now the judge is explaining that evidence can be given in a number of ways in court, by pre-recorded interview, and by pre-recorded cross-examination. She tells them when B was initially interviewed and that, after Mr Y was charged, he was given a copy of the interview. This is crucial for the jury, as they have to know that he had heard her side of the story before he gave his own, other than his prepared statement. Do they also get told that Mr Y is given all the witness statements to read, the police report, everything? If they don't know that, how can they fully understand that he has had seven months and access to all relevant information to come up with his version of events, making sure it matches with B's and the witnesses? I don't know who tells the jury that. I certainly never hear anyone say it. And anyway, even if they know, it's so much to take in. How can the jury absorb all of this, plus the pages and pages of information in their jury bundles? The presence of the intermediary at B's cross-examination is also mentioned, the judge telling the jury what her purpose is. She emphasises that it is no reflection on either the defendant or the witness. She tells the jury that B was just 17 when the alleged rape happened, that she has mental health vulnerabilities and an eating disorder. Then the judge goes on to address rape myths and stereotypes, and instructs the jury that there's no such thing as a typical rape or a typical rape victim. The way a victim reacts, she intones, clearly and decisively, may not be what you expect or what you think you would do. You must put on one side your preconceptions. You are under oath to try the defendant only on what you hear in court. 
Do not let stereotypes interfere with your judgment. Later in the trial, to awful effect, we will find that it is quite simply impossible for some people to drop their long-held cultural beliefs. The judge goes on to tell the jury that the extent to which B can recall what happened is limited, and explains that during an upsetting or shocking experience, memory may be affected. Such an experience may affect the ability to take in what happened and to recall it, she says. Some people go over it all in minute detail, and some may have difficulty remembering anything at all. You have to decide if the allegations are true or not. I will give you further directions where relevant. Emotions play no part in a criminal trial. You must make your decision dispassionately, based on the evidence. When the judge finishes speaking, I let out an audible sigh there. I had been holding my breath for most of this, so keyed up that even the normal bodily function of breathing was affected. I've already filled 14 pages of my notebook, and the trial hasn't really properly begun yet. The prosecution barrister, Sarah, begins her opening statement. She is still off mic and has her back to us, and the courtroom hums with white noise. As a consequence, I hear only three quarters of what she says. What I do hear, though, loud and clear, is that we have not always been told the truth by the police. Mr X does not live far away in a different part of London, as we were told when he was arrested. Far from it. In fact, at the time he raped B, he was in hostel accommodation a ten-minute walk from our house. Not just any old hostel, I might add, but luxury student halls. What this means is that when the police told me that if Mr Y were to be given bail, one of the conditions would be not to enter our borough, this was an impossibility. I'm incandescent with rage that we were lied to about this. For the five days until he was apprehended, this man was living minutes away from our home. If B had left the house during that time, she could easily have encountered him again. Information we will find out later makes this even more possible. It doesn't bear thinking about. Next, Sarah explains the background to the evening, filling in details that are totally new to me. We were told from the beginning that we must not discuss any details of the case with B, our own daughter, for fear of being accused of coaching her, and also in case I was called to give evidence in court. So, of course, we followed the rules. And now we are learning things that I feel I should have known, should have been allowed to know. Sarah builds the picture of B and her friend Sophia. Where and when they met, the local park they went to where they drank pre-mixed gin and tonic, the branch of Sainsbury's they visited to buy food and more drink. Apparently they left the park at 9pm when it started to get chilly, and B was quite drunk by then. They walked up, past the tube station, to a bus stop where Sophia's dad was going to pick her up. Sarah emphasises that B has no recollection of getting to the bus stop, or of how she met Mr Y. The next bombshell comes when the barrister asks for some CCTV footage to be shown. I watch, stunned as a film plays of Mr Y getting off a bus and crossing the road to wait at the opposite bus stop. As he waits, B and Sophia arrive at the bus stop, and soon after, Sophia's dad pulls up in his car. He gets out, chats to the girls. Sophia and he get in, and they drive off. Immediately, B turns and walks off in the direction of home. Mr Y is seen setting off after her, at pace. So when David, B's SOIT officer, told me that the CCTV shows B walking up the hill on her own, and that she must have met the perpetrator at the location, this is not the case, and he must have known it. 
But why would he lie about this? I don't understand it. I get, though I don't accept, that the police can't give us any details about the evidence. But that doesn't mean they have to tell us outright on truths. He could just have said that he couldn't tell me about the existence of CCTV or not, or what it showed or didn't show. I feel betrayed. It was always my belief that Mr. Y was an opportunist, that he must have seen B leave her friend and walk off alone, and that he took his chance. All the evidence provided by this CCTV footage confirms that. He would have known the location behind the nursery school, how quiet and shielded from view it is, as we are also told that he has made this two-bus journey many times in his short ten weeks in the UK. So he was perfectly placed to make the most of the opportunity presented to him of a young, vulnerable girl, drunk and alone in the darkness. When I had voiced this theory to D.S. Luke Gallagher in our meeting all those months ago, he categorically denied to me that this had happened. This led to months of me agonising about how on earth a recently arrived asylum seeker would know about this obscure tiny corner of London and be hanging around there, when there isn't even anywhere to sit down. I worried and worried about this, coming up with scenario after scenario for what might have brought Mr. Y there, but it never made any sense. And now I know why. Because it wasn't true. To add insult to injury, at that meeting Luke had tried to insinuate that the location was a well-known drinking hangout. It isn't. I wish it were. Then there might have been other people there who could have intervened, or at the very least the presence of whom might have prevented Mr. Y from acting out his sick desires. I whisper my outrage to Caroline. Don't mention it now, she says soothingly. You can have that fight afterwards. The next bits are hard to hear, both literally and physically. Sarah reiterates that B's memories are unclear, but that she remembers she did not want to touch his penis, that he pushed her head down. Sarah tells the jury that Mr. Y initiated penetration without consent, that B has no recollection of how it came to an end, that his number appeared in her phone under the name Baby, but she doesn't know how it got there, that she left voice notes for her friends after the attack, saying she'd had sex but she didn't want to have sex, that she'd said no, that she wanted to be left alone. At 10pm, the Good Samaritan member of the public, Nikki, heard her crying, went to find her and asked B if she was okay, to which B's answer was no. Nikki took her on the back of her electric scooter to the Duke's Head, where the police were called. The two officers who responded arrived to find B crying, saying, I don't know who he was, I don't know what happened. At that stage, an hour or so after the attack, B was still unable to recall where Mr. Y had come from. She told the police what Mr. Y had done and that she had tried to get away. Then she broke down, saying, I didn't want to do it. I didn't say no. My heart sinks. All over the CPS guidance, it's reiterated that consent does not have to have anything to do with saying no. But consent is at the heart of any rape trial. The prosecution must prove, and the jury must be sure, beyond reasonable doubt, that the alleged perpetrator did not have reasonable grounds to believe that the complainant was consenting. That's different from proving that the victim didn't consent. It's proving that the victim didn't consent and that the perpetrator knew this. Reasonable grounds could be interpreted in a myriad different ways. It's also quite different from proving that sexual activity took place. In cases where the perpetrator uses violence, 
It's much easier to prove that he knew he did not have reasonable grounds to believe it was consensual. But the reality is that most instances of rape do not include violence because there is no need to. Some victims, the minority, fight back. But most are paralysed by fear, too numbed and shocked to do anything. Many fall into the role of appeaser or befriender, going along with it in order to hopefully prevent something worse happening, like being badly injured or murdered. Not all, by any means, but most victims of rape are female. The vast majority of perpetrators are male, and the vast majority of men are stronger than women. Violence doesn't have to come into it when men can get what they want without resorting to it. B's words, I didn't say no, could be fatal to the prosecution if the jury takes this as proof that Mr Y had reasonable grounds to believe she consented. After all, if she didn't say no, she meant yes, right? But can the jury really believe that a 17-year-old girl with no prior sexual experience would stop by the roadside to lose her virginity to a complete stranger on a random Monday night in July? Surely they won't believe that. Will they? <laughs>